it is with a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving that we come to you, Lord. Father, we just thank you for the wonderful work of the cross. And Lord, that we can come into this place and celebrate our salvation that is found in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that once again, as we are established in your truth and in your word, that it would cause us to fall more in love with you, to grow in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ, and, Lord, that we would be established in your truth. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. We're going to be studying the book of Jude this morning. And so if you open up to that little epistle, the second book, of or the second to the last book anyways right before the book of revelation is where it's at the book of or epistle of jude right before revelation in the back of your bibles while you're turning there clayton come up here what a blessing it was to see clayton this morning You've seen his picture up here on the, on the screen in our announcements, and we've had it every Sunday, every week, praying for you. He just got back on his first tour of duty from Iraq, a medic there. He has seen things and been involved in things that we would never dream of, or, or, and uh, we're just so proud of you, Clayton. And uh, we are so blessed that you're home right now, safe. And I wanted to bring him up and, and just pray for him, because uh, I don't know how much time... Uh, that we're going to have to share with him while he's on leave. He's got to report back to duty here in a couple weeks, and then he's going to be heading back to Iraq in the spring. So Calvary Chapel Greeley, continue to pray for him and continue to pray for our troops overseas that are fighting on our behalf. And uh, again, we're just, we just love you, and we're so glad you're here with us. And so, Father, we thank you for Clayton. We thank you for his service. And Lord, we thank you for the bravery and the, and the courage that you have given him to do what you called him to do over in Iraq, the work that he is doing. And Father, I thank you for the young man that you have made him in and, and conforming him in, into a young man of God that is a light in such a dark, dark place. So Father, I pray that you would just continue to protect him and grow him, that you would strengthen him, that, Lord, that you bring that comfort that he needs when, Lord, he sees things and is a part of things, that he needs you so much. And, Lord, that he would know that you're there with him, that you bring protection. And, Father, that you would just help him to do what you've called him to do. Father, we thank you for the example that he is to us and to our young people. And, Father, we just pray that you would just continue to just, uh, Lord, work in his life and drawing him to yourself. And, Lord, that he would grow in your love and Lord, and be strengthened, and Lord, continue to use him. I pray you bless his time here, that as he has a time to just rest for a while. And Lord, that you would refresh him and renew him. And Lord, I pray that as he returns back to duty, that Lord, that we would be committed to, to lifting him up in prayer and blessing him. And Lord, that you, your hand would be upon him. Show yourself strong on his behalf. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Love you, man. Okay, you take care. All right. <laughs> book of Jude. As we started this book last week, this short epistle penned by Jude, the half-brother of, of, of Jesus, the brother of James. Of course, Mary, her firstborn was Jesus, born of a virgin. And then after the birth of her firstborn, it would be Mary and Joseph that would 
have a normal marriage and relationships, and we know the scriptures tells us very specifically that Joseph and Mary had other children, and those sons that they had are named there in Matthew chapter 13, and it was Jude and James that are mentioned there as well as his other brothers, and then we also know that Jesus had half-sisters as well. James, who would pen the epistle of James, was a leader in the early church. It is believed that he was actually, in the early days of uh, the church, was the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. As you read the book of Acts, from the day of Pentecost up to Acts chapter 12, you see that Peter really assumed the role of, of leadership there in Jerusalem as the church was there in Jerusalem. And it would be up until that point where Peter would be arrested by Herod. He was going to be executed, but with the Christians and the disciples praying that it was Peter that was released miraculously by an angel. He comes to where the disciples are praying there in Acts chapter 12, and he says, go and tell James that I'm leaving. And so Peter would leave Jerusalem for a while. He would resume in his ministry that would expand out of Jerusalem. But at that time, it's believed in church history that James, the half-brother Jesus, would assume the role as the leader and the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. James would be martyred for his faith and trust in Jesus Christ as he was killed in Jerusalem. And his brother Jude, now also a leader in the early church, is now writing this epistle as he's inspired by God. He's writing to Christians everywhere. And as we saw last week, the initial intent of his letter was to write to the believers concerning our common salvation. So he wanted to write to them about, you know, the salvation we have in Christ Jesus, the blessing of heaven, the hope of heaven, the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ, that we have an inheritance, all those things that he really wanted to focus on in this epistle, but he doesn't. And he says, as we saw last week in verse 3, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. And so, as we saw, that, that means Judas is is feeling necessary to write to the Christians that you need to earnestly contend, and that is to work at, to fight for, to defend that which is true, the faith that you and I have as believers. Why? Well, verse 4, certain men have crept in unnoticed, that is, apostates, false teachers, they are ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and who deny the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude here is emphasizing apostates and false teachers that have crept into the church. They have come in amongst the believers. They're unnoticed. They don't make a, a big announcement that they're apostates or that they're there. But the danger is they're amongst the Christians and they're bringing in ungodly doctrine and, and their heresy, turning the grace of God into lewdness. In other words, saying that you can live any way that you want to, even contrary to what God has told us and how we are to live, living in holiness, living in purity, living after the Lord. They were saying, it's okay, go out and sin. Live any kind of lifestyle that you want. And so they turned the grace of God into lewdness. We talked about that quite specifically last week. And then also they were misrepresenting Christ in that, that they were misrepresenting the, the deity of Jesus Christ. They were misrepresenting the truth about Jesus, who he is, uh, in other ways as well. And so we ended up with Jude giving us three examples in the Old Testament with those who spoke and lived contrary to the faith, 
to the truth of God's word, how there would be a, a, even a small group of them that would permeate the hearts and the minds of many and then leading them astray. And the result would be that there would be the judgment of God. So he used the example of the Old Testament of the people of God coming out of Egypt. And they would come out of Egypt into the wilderness. They would come up to the border of the promised land. God had told them that I'm going to give you this land. It's a good land flowing with milk and honey. It's a very productive land. And so the inhabitants that are there, I will drive out those inhabitants. And so they sent 12 spies into the land. They came back 40 days later. They have all this fruit. And it was Joshua and Caleb that said, it is a good land. And, and it's just as the Lord said, and even more. So let's go in and let's take the land. He promised to give it to us. But 10 other spies said that we can't because there's giants in the lands and we're but grasshoppers. And so the voices of 10 men would permeate throughout that whole nation, 2 million people, and they would cry out in unbelief. They would say, we can't. And so it was spoken by those 10 spies above the word of God and against the word of God. And so judgment would come to that whole generation as they would die out in the wilderness with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. He would also give the example of the angels that had fallen who rebelled with Satan. And of course, they are reserved for everlasting judgment. And so Satan, who was Lucifer as he was a, a cherub, as Ezekiel's prophecies say, and then also Isaiah tells us that he was one that uh, rebelled against God. He wanted to sit on, sit on the throne of God. He wanted to be like God, worship like God. And in his pride and in his arrogance and in his rebellion, leading that rebellion as there would be those fallen angels, a host of those uh, heavenly angels that joined in and they would be fallen angels now and they are reserved for everlasting judgment. And then Sodom and Gomorrah. And the third example that we saw, of course, Sodom and Gomorrah marked and characterized by immorality. And, and so Jude's warning us, you can't just live any way that you want to, contrary to the way that God desires and as he has commanded us. And so now in verses 8 through 16, Jude's going to continue to discuss these present apostates that they too will receive the judgment of God and they will experience the same fate. So first of all, we're going to see that Jude's going to describe and characterize these false teachers as we pick up our text, Jude verse 8. Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. So Jude begins with using different terms. A figure of speech is the terms that he used in describing these apostates. He says they're dreamers. They're out of touch with that which is true. They defile the flesh just as what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, as mentioned in the previous verse, they reject authority. And that's what these apostates were doing. That's what happened with the angels. They rejected authority. That's what happened with the children of Israel. They rejected the authority of Moses and, and the authority of what God had said. And it was these apostates that would come in behind the ministry of the apostles and they would challenge the authority of the apostles, the doctrine that they brought, the gospel that they brought. They would reject the authority of God's word. You know, sometimes people will say to you and to me, when we are giving them the gospel and the truth of God's word, they will say, well, what authority do you have to be telling me that? And we have the authority of God's word, the infallibility, the inspiration, and the truthfulness of God's word is the final authority in our lives. And then thirdly, they speak 
evil of dignitaries. And so here are the characteristics. He is apostate speaking again against the apostles and undermining them. In verse 9, yet Michael the archangel in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dare not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now interesting verse here, isn't it? Now why would Michael the archangel contend with and dispute with Satan over the body of Moses? Well, the Bible doesn't say. We do know from Deuteronomy chapter 34 that Moses was on Mount Nebo there on the east side of the Jordan River. And God showed him all of the promised land, but Moses would not enter into the promised land. And Deuteronomy chapter 34 goes on to tell us that Moses would die there in the land of Moab. He would be buried there in the valley of of Moab. We don't know where his grave is. The scripture in Deuteronomy 34 says no one knows where it is to this day. But God would bury Moses, as Deuteronomy 34 tells us. And so Michael the archangel was involved in that burial of Moses. And so it's been suggested and it's, it's been debated why there's this, you know, uh, going on this dispute between Satan and Michael the archangel over the body of Moses. One of the speculations is, is that Moses is going to be one of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. When we get there, we're going to see that in the tribulation period, in the first half of that seven-year period, that there's going to be the two witnesses in Jerusalem. And they're going to be prophesying. They're going to be giving the testimony of Jesus Christ. They're going to be working miracles. And so as you look at the miracles that are described to us in Revelation chapter 11, we know that it is uh, very similar to Elijah and what Moses did. So they believe that Elijah and Moses are going to be the two witnesses. Of course, Elijah and Moses would be on the Mount of Transfiguration there in the Gospel accounts when Jesus was transfigured there on Mount Hermon. And so we don't know exactly why this dispute, but the point that Jude is making here is not why Michael disputed with Satan, but how he disputed with Satan. That's the key here. Michael didn't dispute Satan in his own authority, but in the Lord's authority. He did battle with Satan in the name of the Lord. So it wasn't Michael the archangel, who's a powerful angel. He wasn't cursing Satan. He didn't call him a long list of names. He didn't read him the riot act to him and go on his long tirade and rebuking him. And isn't it interesting? I'm sure you've seen it before. There have been guys and TV evangelists and ministers on you know, the TV that I've seen, or perhaps you've seen it in, in churches where they go on this long tirade and they're speaking to Satan and Satan you and pointing their fists at Satan and I'll get you and, and all this. And here they are, they're yelling, getting all worked up and spits coming out of their mouths. And nowhere does it tell us where we are to speak to the devil. Nowhere does it say that we're to pray to the devil. Nowhere does it say that we're to speak to him in that way, except in God's authority of using this word. Isn't that what Jesus did? When the temptations came against, you know, Jesus in the wilderness by Satan, well, how did Jesus respond? It is written. It is written. It is written. And so here he used the authority of God's word. We do battle in the name of the Lord and in his authority. 
and, and we leave it in the Lord's hands. And so apostates didn't do that. They didn't respect authority, Jude says. Certainly not the Lord's authority, but they come in their own authority deceiving the people. So it was Michael who would not bring a reviling accusation even against Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you in verse 10. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts. In these things they corrupt themselves. So whereas Michael did not uh, dare accuse the devil, these apostates, by contrast, spoke evil or abusively against what they did not understand. They, their evil speech shows their ignorance, spiritual ignorance. Their knowledge was only in the natural, and what a beast would instinctively know. And uh, they're slaves to their flesh, living like animals, and in that they corrupt themselves. And again, the Gnostics of the early church at this time, they would claim to have superior knowledge, but they didn't. And, and even though they claim to have superior knowledge, and people today will come along in apostates and say, we have special revelation. We have special knowledge, but they don't know what they're talking about. And so they were denying the incarnation of, of Jesus and all these other things. They were encouraging the people to sin. And so here Jude says that they have gone in their own way. They don't know what they're talking about. They have corrupted themselves. In verse 11, woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now Jude says concerning these apostates, woe to them. And when the Bible says woe, it's bad news, isn't it? It's not good. And these apostates, first of all, they've gone the way of Cain. We know the story of Cain, don't we? Genesis chapter 4. It was Cain and his brother Abel that brought a sacrifice to God. Abel's sacrifice was accepted. We know from Hebrews chapter 11 that Abel brought that sacrifice in faith. It was a more excellent sacrifice. Cain, he did not bring his sacrifice in faith. So it wasn't accepted. And Cain's response when he was rejected was one of anger and resentment. And it tells us in Genesis 4 that his countenance fell. And God said to him, If you do well, Cain, will you not be accepted? If you do well. In other words, his heart was not right with God. And he knew what he needed to do. God had told him, but Cain wanted to come to God under his own terms. He wanted to come in his own way, under his own works, when he was told how it is that he was to come. He was to come in faith. And there are those that will want to come to God their own way, and under their own terms, to God, to worship. And, and people will say to you and to me, I know God, I got a relationship with God. And you can say, oh, you're a Christian, you believe in Jesus Christ. No, I don't need to come to God through Jesus Christ, they want to come to God in their own way. And have you ever had anybody get angry like Cain did? Angry at you because you gave them the gospel. Who are you to tell me that the only way to God is through Jesus Christ? And so here was Cain in his pride, in his arrogance, his own idea of defining God and how he can come to God, was rejected of God, rejected what he was told how it is that he's accepted, and people today will do the same thing, and these apostates were doing that. But not only these apostates have gone the way of Cain, but secondly, they have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. Now, we talked about the doctrine of Balaam on Wednesday night because the church of Pergamos, there was a problem in the church, and that is that you guys 
have some of you kept the doctrine of Balaam. And so there was Balak, the king of Moab, when he saw the children of Israel, there in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 24. He saw the children of Israel come into his land, and so they, they covered the land. So he hires or wants to hire Balaam, this, this prophet, to speak a curse against the children of Israel. And so he offers them gold and silver and money, and Balaam, who was greedy, was told not to go. But because he wanted that money, he would eventually go. There's a whole story behind it. You can read those chapters, and we discussed it on Wednesday nights. But he went out of that greed, and he spoke, but he couldn't curse the, the people of Israel. Only blessing came out of those four prophecies that are recorded for us there in the book of Numbers. And so he comes back to Balak, and he says, because he still wants the money, he says, Balak, listen, I can't curse those people. God won't let me. But this is how you can get to them. You can get to them inwardly, and that is have all your young ladies of Moab get all dressed up and, and go into the camp, seduce the young men, have them bring their idols, they introduce idol worship, and that's what they did. And so the young men were seduced by those women of Moab. They committed immorality. They were involved in idolatry, and then God would bring judgment upon the camp. 24,000 would die in that judgment. And so so because of his greediness, he would then tell Balak how it is that they could get to or have the, the judgment of God come against the children of Israel. And so idolatry, the doctrine of, of, of Balaam, idolatry and immorality introduced, and that's what these apostates were doing. You know, today, those, those guys that, that introduce and are so focused and build their whole ministries on the prosperity movement, sometimes people say, you know, you're a little hard on them sometimes, Pastor Jeff, but here's the thing. Those who are emphasizing that you are to be rich and God wants you to be rich, what's the emphasis? Is it the money and riches and possession or is it God? You can't tell me that it's God. The emphasis is the wealth. That's the emphasis, and that's idolatry when it becomes that. Anything that is in, comes in place and has priority over your devotion and love to God, it is an idol. It's not just a statue that sits up on your mantle. And so introducing idolatry, focusing on that which is temporal, possessions and things, God's just a means of getting it, like a celestial Santa Claus. It's like with Christmas is coming up, you know, and, and kids, they go and see Santa Claus. It's the focus. Santa Claus are the things they want. It's the things they want. And so spiritually, and I don't mean to compare Santa Claus with God, but that's almost what they do. And it's like, oh, God's just a means of it, and here, focus on this, and that's where the focus is, and then they will boast in their own riches. Thirdly, in verse, the verse here that we read, we see that they've gone by the way of Korah there in verse 10. Another story given in the book of Numbers. What would their sin? Well, Korah and, and it was Dathan and Abraham and on and 250 leaders who led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. They came to Moses and they said, Moses, you know what? You take too much upon yourself. You think you're really special being the leader of the children of Israel. Well, we're special too. And then they would go on and particularly challenge Aaron as being the high priest. God had placed Aaron as the high priest, and in the book of Numbers, which is a book of order, to, to, to give 
order and how it is that they were to serve their specific duties, the priests and the Levites out of the tribe of the Levites would be the Levites that would assist in the ministry there in the tabernacle, but only the direct line of Aaron and his sons were the priests. And here is Korah who was a Levite, but he was not from the direct line of Aaron. He wanted to be the high priest. He wanted to do the priestly service. And so he had a spirit of rebellion. He wanted to rebel against that which God had said. He wanted to rebel against those who God had placed in authority. And what ended up happening is, is that the earth ended up opening up and swallowing Korah and Dathan and Abraham and Ong. And, and the 250 liters fire came down and consumed them because they had this spirit of rebellion. And I'll tell you this. Any of us as Christians, if you have a spirit of rebellion that you're in rebellion against the authority of God's word or the authority that God has put in place. And, and we talked about, didn't we, very specifically as we went through Peter's epistle not that long ago, that he talks about we as Christians, we are subject governing authorities. We are subject to those who are in authority in the workplace and, and, and children to parents. He, there's certain places that you and I are to be in that place of authority, the leaders in the church, whatever. And if you have a spirit of rebellion against that, you're going to end up in the pits, folks. And you're going to end up being swallowed up. And God will deal with any of us that have that spirit of rebellion. And so that was the way the apostates were. They didn't want to be under anyone's authority except for their own. And Jude continues describing these apostates using these terms or figures of speech here to point out how crafty and dangerous they are. Verse 12, these are spots in your love feast. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, laid on them leaves without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up to their own shame, wandering stars for, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. The early church was known for having what they called agape feasts or love feasts. And, and Paul discusses that in, in 1 Corinthians. They would... Uh, be having love feasts, and then um, and it's something what the Christians would do and having a potluck. It's like what we did a couple weeks ago, that wonderful time that we had over at the Banowitz home. Um, and so they would do that on a regular basis, and then they would have communion that followed. And here were these certain men that were coming in, and their selfishness spoiled the fellowship that they were having. They were like a spot. Now, if I stood up here in this white shirt and had a big spot here, you guys would probably notice it. It would be hard to hide, wouldn't it? And that's the way it was with these guys. They were coming in in their selfishness, not sharing, not really fellowshipping with the people, not edifying them, coming in, trying to draw people after themselves, and let's go off in our corner and have our own little group. And so it was a spot in these, these uh, agape feasts. And then secondly, they are clouds without water or rain carried about by the winds. Now, we can relate to that in this part of the country, can't we? We, in the summertime, we see those clouds that build up over the mountains, and we think, oh, we're going to get some rain, and they're dark clouds, but pretty soon it just comes blowing over, and all it is is a bunch of wind that's blowing through, no rain, and that's the way these apostates were. They didn't water, you know, the people with the word of God, watering with, the, you know, uh, as, as Paul says, being watered with the, you know, whatever. With the <laughs> cleanse with the water of the word. That's what I'm trying to say. And that's what I am to do. Cleanse you with the water of the word. Husbands, cleanse your wife with the water of the word. Parents to your children. They weren't doing that. 
And they were just a bunch of hot air that was blowing. And, and so that's the analogy here that's being made. And then 30, they're late autumn trees without fruit. And of course, a tree in the autumn or late summer is to have fruit. And the fruit trees that didn't bear fruit would be pulled up. And so they had no spiritual fruit. Jude here indicates that they're going to be judged. Uh, once a fruit tree is, is pulled up by its root, it's done. It's done forever. It won't ever live again. So it's twice dead, if you would. Dead because no fruit, and then dead in totality when they're pulled up by the roots and apostates will have no fruit, and then they will experience God's eternal judgment. And then fourthly here, they're like raging waves of the sea. The people were being tossed about like waves and the winds of doctrine that they were bringing in and with their false teaching, and, and yet these guys were foaming up. It means that they were being big and loud and boisterous, but to their own shame. Jude says, don't follow them. And then they are wandering stars. It's like saying they were like shooting stars, a falling star. And so uh, we see that in, in the summertime. We look up in the sky at night, you see a shooting star, and, and it starts out big and bright, and then it just kind of fades out after a few seconds. And that's going to be the outcome of these apostates, is what Jude is saying. They may be bright and shiny for a moment, but they're going to burn up into the blackness of darkness forever. And then verse 14, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So in verse 14, uh, it's interesting because many scholars believe that Enoch uh, or that Jude is actually quoting from the book of Enoch, which is part of the Apocrypha. Now, the Apocrypha, the Jews would read and some of the early Christians and apostles read and they respected it. But here's the thing. If, if Jude is quoting from that book, the book of Enoch, he is affirming only the truth of this prophecy from Enoch. He's not endorsing the whole book as being inspired by God. Now, I want you to remember that because one of the things that's kind of popular today that, that we see more and more of is those who are Bible teachers and those who seem to be very, very good Bible teachers, they will use a lot of extra-biblical sources and some ancient writings that, that came from the rabbis or from Judaism or ancient Christian writings, and they will treat it as inspired by God. It is only the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, that we can say that that is inspired by God, all of it. But be careful when people treat extra-biblical sources as being inspired. Now, if it is Jude here that is indeed, um, you know, familiar with the book of Jude, he is inspired by God, or the book of Enoch, he's inspired by God to quote that particular prophecy that Enoch made. Now, we do know from Genesis chapter 5, in verses 23 and 24, it tells us that in the days of Enoch, there were 365 years, and he walked with God, and then he was not, for God took him. In other words, he was raptured. Can you imagine walking with God and all of a sudden, poof, you're in heaven? That'd be pretty neat, wouldn't it? And that's what happened to Enoch. So he's raptured. Elijah, we know that he went up in a fiery chariot. So some suggest in Revelation chapter 11 that the two witnesses are Elijah and Enoch. Because the scripture says that it's appointed once for men to die, then the judgment. And since Elijah and Enoch have not tasted death physically, that they're still going to do that because the two witnesses will be killed in Revelation 11. 
stand by, come join us for Revelation study. It's, it's interesting what we're going to read. But Enoch was raptured. I believe he's a picture of the church. Now the rapture is when Jesus comes for his church. Here he is prophesying about the second coming of Jesus Christ when we will, the Lord comes back with his church. That's you and me. And again, we'll talk about that in Revelation chapter 19. And when Jesus Christ comes back, we will come back with him, riding on white horses, as we're told in the scriptures. Yeah, he comes with ten thousands of his saints. He's going to judge all the ungodly. And so Jude is once again making the point that apostates have and will experience God's judgment. And he is reminding us that don't take the judgment of God lightly. In verse 16, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lust, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Now, as Judas wrapping up this section on present apostates, he uses again another four, fourfold description of them. They're grumblers, they're complainers, or that is, they're fight, fault finders, and they would point out or try to you know, finding fault with everybody else and the church leaders and the apostles and criticizing them and grumbling against them and, and they didn't even recognize their own flaws and their own sinfulness. Secondly, they walked according to their own lusts. They're not walking in the Spirit nor desire the things of the Spirit but pursue their own desires, their own agenda. And then fourthly, they speak great swelling words that comes out of their mouths and they do it to take advantage of others. Now, you can read Jude's epistle and compare it to Second Peter and some of the things that Jude is saying to what Peter had written, and they were written about the same time. That Jude picks up a lot of what the Apostle Peter had written in that epistle. And in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 18, Peter says about those false teachers, they speak great swelling words of emptiness. So Jude is kind of using that same term. And, and as he does, he's saying that they, the words that they speak are worthless. And the word swelling that Peter uses in 2 Peter chapter 2 and what Jude uses here in verse 16 means boastful. They were bragging about themselves. They were all puffed up about themselves. So there's this description here that these apostates, that they're discontent, sinfully self-centered, they're egotistical, they're deceptively flattering. So Jude spends his time in verses 5 through 16 really describing and, and warning us of these apostates. I'm warning you, they are real, and they're on the scene, and this is their characteristics. This is what they're like. And now as we finish this epistle, we're going to see that Jude's going to give us guidelines on how to avoid these guys, not to get sucked into their destructive teachings and their ways. And so verse 17 but you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. Are, these are sensual persons who cause division, not having the spirit. I want you guys to recognize these false teachers. And this is how you keep from falling into their errors. Remember the words of the apostles that they warned you about these scoffers, these mockers. Now again, didn't Peter write in 2 Peter chapter uh, 3, I believe it is, that he would say that in the last days there would be what? Mockers concerning the Lord's return. And so here he's describing them as being mockers. Remember what the apostles had written here. They had, they had warned you against these, these false teachers, these apostates. And of course, you look throughout the New Testament, you see warning after warning by the apostles to the Christians concerning the apostates. Here by, by Brother Jude, who was not 
an apostle. He says here, you remember that was spoken by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he was warning them, the apostles, we know Peter did, we saw John did very, uh, very much in his epistles that we went through recently. We know that it was Paul that did over and over again to Timothy and the other letters that he wrote. He would say to the Ephesian elders there in Acts chapter 20 that I warned you day and night with tears about these false teachers. There are savage wolves that will come in speaking perverse things, drawing away disciples after themselves. I've warned you, warned you daily about this. And so here he says, remember that, that you were warned about these guys. Be on watch. But the reality is, as well, as he continues on, that they are sensual persons. They cause division. Now that word sensual uh, here means living by the physical senses. Uh, in other words, they were saying, if it feels good, then do it. Do you ever hear that spoken today? If it feels good or it, you know, you're sincere, how can it be wrong? And that's what we hear even more and more behind the pulpit by those who are calling themselves ministers of Christ. And so they are sensual. And not only that, but they cause division. What they would do, that word division means to separate, to disjoin. They saw themselves as having this special knowledge and, and being special. They draw people after themselves. And then what they would do is say, you need to separate them you know, yourself from those other people. And they would have their own little group. Now, here's something to remember. That, that the work of the flesh, that here that Judah is speaking of, these apostates, can not only just mean that it is obvious sin that they're living in, but also it can mean that they are being trying to be and put on uh, being spiritual, super spiritual in their own flesh, like the Pharisees. The word Pharisee actually means separated one. And so there was the Pharisees that were ones that saw themselves as religiously pious and were the separated ones, and they saw themselves above the people, and Jesus said, you're full of dead men's bones. That was a work of the flesh as well. And so, you know, perhaps you, you've seen people or a group of people that they separate themselves from other Christians because they see themselves as being super spiritual and we're above everybody else and we're going to keep away from everybody else. And that's not what the Scripture desires for us as Christians to do. We are to fellowship with one another is what we are to do. We're one, and we are to, to build each other up in the things of God. So here he says, you've been warned by, you know, the apostles, beloved. And then Jude gives us a four guidelines to keep us from the doctrines of the apostates and from their influence, verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up, on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So how do we avoid these false teachers and, and, and false leaders that were of Jude's day and of today? Well, verse 20, build yourselves up on your most holy faith. It means that you keep growing spiritually. It speaks of personal edification and progressing in the knowledge of, of your faith. That faith that he said in verse 3 that you are to contend earnestly for, fight for, and defend. But in other words, what we are told here in scriptures, you're responsible for your own spiritual growth. Do you know that? You don't just leave it up to everybody else. Now, there are people in your lives, there have been in my life, and I hope I'm one of them for you that will help you and encourage you. And as you come here, I hope you're blessed. And it helps you as we experience 
expand the, you know, and, and do expository teaching and look at the scripture specifically and verse by verse. I hope it's a blessing to you as you come here and as you go through Bible studies during the week, men's studies and ladies' studies and all that. But you need to make a decision in your life that this is a priority with me, that I'm going to be one that's going to build myself up and grow spiritually. And you do that by being devoted to the Lord and growing in God's word. It's like what Paul would say to Timothy, to Timothy, you be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And we're going to encourage you and help you in that, but it's you saying, you know what, I'm just not going to be fed by everybody else. I need to feed myself too. And make it a commitment where I'm having daily devotions and I'm studying the word of God and I'm looking into his word. And it's a responsibility that you and I, all of us have. Secondly, how we can keep from being deceived by the apostates and false teachers today is by prayer, praying in the Holy Spirit. Now here the primary meaning is spending time in prayer and fellowship with God and being sensitive to the leading of the Spirit as you pray. So praying, Lord, is this of you? Praying for discernment. Lord, give me discernment of what is being said. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will be your teacher. John wrote when he was speaking about false teachers about how we all have the anointing of the Holy Spirit and anointing of discernment. So we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit as we pray, listening to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit teaching us and guiding us and not just directed from our own desires and wants and wishes. Now, don't misunderstand me. Of course we can give our, our desires to the Lord. Of course we can cast our cares upon Him. We can tell Him our wants. But it isn't just a fleshly thing of demanding and I want this and manipulating, but Lord, what is it that you want? And Lord, I want to be in line with your word and and stand on your truth. And I want to be, you know, in your will, not my will, but your will be done. And so that's what he's talking about, being sensitive to the Lord speaking to you as you pray. And then verse 21, keep yourselves in God's love. It's the same idea of what Jesus said in John 15, abide in my love. And it has the idea of remaining in my love. And of course, it was something that John emphasizes. We saw going through his epistles before we started in on Jude, that it was John that emphasized abiding in Christ, abiding in in his truth. As you abide in Christ, it means that you're going to abide in his truth and abide in his love. You're going to walk in obedience. It's all linked together. And we discussed that quite extensively as we went through those epistles. And then fourthly, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ until eternal life. In other words, looking for the Lord's return, which is the consummation uh, of his mercy, isn't it? And in watching, it means waiting here. It has the meaning of the word looking expectantly. And as you are looking expectantly, keeping your eyes on the Lord is going to help you keep your eyes on the truth. And you're not going to be seduced and and swayed and tossed about by that which is false. And it is also going to cause you, as 1 John chapter 3 says, that he who has this hope purifies himself. You're going to be walking with the Lord and you're going to be walking in purity because you're looking for the Lord. You're expecting the Lord to come. And so as we look at these four things, it's kind of interesting how these four things really line up with the four things that are spoken of in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And again, we discussed it on Wednesday nights. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says that they continued in their early church steadfastly in four things. That's the apostles' doctrine, in prayer, fellowship, and breaking bread. 
And as you look at those four things, they closely align with these four things. The Apostles' Doctrine, that's the study of God's Word. Jude says, build yourselves up in the faith. You do that by studying God's Word. They continue steadfastly in prayer in the early church. Jude here says, praying in the Holy Spirit. They continued in fellowship, koinonia, fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. And here is Jude saying, keeping God's love, because as you keep in God's love, that means you're having fellowship with Him, and that love is going to be worked out in you, isn't it? And you're going to have fellowship with other brothers and sisters. And then, breaking bread, the communion table, coming to the Lord's table with waiting. What does the Lord's table have to do with waiting? Well, Paul was writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11 that the night that the Lord was betrayed, that he took bread, broke it, and, and said, Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. And in the same manner, he took the cup after supper, the cup of the new covenant, the, and he said, Take, drink, this is my blood, which was shed for the forgiveness of sin. And as he's talking about the Lord's table, the communion, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, Paul writes, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So you're looking at the cross, what Jesus did, but also you're looking forward to the time where we're all going to be having dinner together at the marriage feast of the Lamb. It was Jesus that said in that upper room to his disciples that, you know what, I will come and draw you to myself. I will take you to myself that where I am you will be also. And so communion is coming, remembering what Jesus did for you and for me, but also it is also reminding us that he's going to come again. And we're going to have dinner with him. So they all line up real closely together. It's kind of interesting. In verse 22, And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So Jude guiding us on how now we can minister to others who are involved in some way with apostates or influenced by them. He says, make a distinction. Be led by the Lord. Have mercy. Some may be flirting with them, entertaining them, you know, doubtful or confused whether to follow them, but you be ones out of compassion, minister to them, give them the truth. Now, there are others that are involved with them, and you have to be more bold and strong in dealing with them, like pulling them out of the fire. That's really where they're headed for. And so if you were to pull somebody out of the fire, you're going to be pretty, you know, adamant about it, aren't you? And so that's what Jude is saying, that you need to be more strong in your approach to them and more bold with them. In verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Beautiful doxology, isn't it? He's the one that keeps us from stumbling. With so much false teachers out there and, and so many voices out there, it can really be shaky ground unless you are planted firmly on a solid foundation of Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel and his word. He's the one that will keep you and I from stumbling into that which is false and, and that which is going to pull us away from the Lord. But I love this, to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. It's one of my favorite verses of all of Scripture. Because realize this, that you're going to be presented faultless, you who name the name of Jesus. You're going to be presented faultless before the Father and I think, you know, Lord, I am so far from that. But because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, that when we go home to be with the Lord and when we see Jesus, 
that he's going to usher us into, if you would, the throne room of the Father and, and introduce you, if you would, not that you need introducing, but he's going to present you faultless before the Father. And the Father and the Son are going to do what? Are going to rejoice over you. That's our future. So you keep looking to the Lord and be established in Him. And, and that day is going to come. We're going to be with our Lord for all eternity. And then verse 25, To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. So Father, we thank you for this word that is given to us. We thank you for the truth of the gospel that has been brought to us through your word, through the apostles' teaching. Father, I do pray if there's anyone that is in this place, in this building today, whether the coffee shop or whether here in this sanctuary, that perhaps they haven't come to Jesus Christ. Maybe they've tried to come to you in their own terms, their own way, or maybe thinking they could never come to you that they would know it comes through Jesus Christ who's made way for them to come to God. And it comes through Jesus Christ by believing in Him, recognizing that you need the Savior of the world, that you have sinned. And you need to turn away from the way you're thinking or what you've been doing. And, and you need to go through Jesus Christ and it comes by faith, humbling your heart, Coming in childlike faith, and you can pray right where you are. Jesus, come into my heart. I know that I have sinned. And I know that you are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through you. And so I come to you. Forgive me of my sins, for I have sinned. And I submit to you. And I am devoted to you. And what you have done and dying for me. Forgive me of my sins. I believe that you're alive and you rose again. Be my Lord and Savior. And for all of us, that we would put ourselves always under the authority of God's Word, under His authority in our lives, that we would live pleasing to you, Lord. Father, we thank you that we have truth to guide us and direct us and make us wise unto salvation. We thank you that, Lord, we can turn to you and we can be ones that can be built up as we continue walking with you and walking in your love. As we are ones that we are praying, seeking you in prayer, men and women of prayer. That we are men and women of the word. That, Lord, that we are ones that are looking for your soon return. And, Lord, I pray that we would be ones that would be strengthened by you in everything that we do. Bless everyone here as we go our way. Show yourself strong on our behalf. Lord, as people come in, perhaps needing healing or comfort or wisdom or strength, that you would grant that. Lord, we all come in with special needs or, Lord, things on our hearts that, that Lord, that you would minister to us as we just spend time with you. Lord, that you would speak to us. Father, I pray that you bless everyone here this morning as we leave this place. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.